So this is the book of Romans. In case knowing that it's God's word was not enough to get you excited, the book of Romans is a little book that has transformed not just the church. This book has changed the world a couple times. As in, things were done differently after people took a hard look at the book of Romans. Isn't that exciting? Oh, the Bible's boring to me. Then you're doing it wrong. This thing has changed the world. It has rocked empires. It has founded denominations. It has broken apart corruption. There's three great champions of the faith that are always put up as the, the ones who love the book of Romans so much. Augustine, who was a bishop and a pastor in Egypt. But before that, he was a rotten sinner, as he puts it. And he was caught up in all kinds of immorality. And it was when he opened the book of Romans and read in chapter 13, where it talks about not continuing in the lust of the body, that God broke him. And he finally gave his life over to Jesus Christ. And he became this incredible theologian and man of God. That was around, or late 300s, around 400 AD. Of course, we have Martin Luther, who was the famous monk of monks, trying everything he could to be right before God, but he was too honest to allow himself to say, yeah, it's probably good enough. And he began to hate God because he says, God tells us to be right. We can't be right. Therefore, he's just sending everybody to hell until he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which we're going to study in a couple weeks, that the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. The just shall live by faith. And that by faith blew his mind and then it proceeded to blow all of Europe's mind and then the rest of the world's mind in the Protestant Reformation. By rediscovering what this book meant, it challenged the church, it shook the church, it fractured the church, but it brought the gospel back to the people. John Wesley was part of something called the Holy Club at Oxford University. Doesn't that sound like a fun club to be a part of? The Holy Club. They took their time methodically, where the name Methodist comes from, to study their Bible and to pray and to be righteous and to be disciplined, him and his brother and George Whitfield and some others. And he said, I'm going to go become a missionary. And he went over to Georgia, which was, of course, frontier country at that time. And it went so badly for him. He comes home thoroughly discouraged, feeling like he barely knows God at all, until he encounters on the boat home these, these Moravian Christians that seemed to have something that he didn't. They seemed to love and know God in a way that he didn't. He attended a meeting, and this is the famous Aldersgate meeting, where they were reading Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans. And as they were reading that, John Wesley famously said, my heart was strangely warmed, and I felt like I knew God for the first time. The book of Romans, all three of these great men and so many others were converted by this epistle. So I'm excited to study it aren't you? This is the longest of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. And it is the last one that was written before his imprisonment. You should know that the epistles in the New Testament are organized this way. You have the history books, gospels, acts. Then you have Paul's epistles organized by length. So Romans is the longest, then 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They keep the letters that are to the same city together. Hebrews is at the end because we're not sure if that was Paul or not, so they stick it in the middle. Then you have the general epistles, and then you have Revelation, the prophetic book. And the last one, as I said, written before his imprisonment, which means Galatians would have been first, then first and second Thessalonians, then Corinthians, first and second, and then the book of Romans. So that should orient you as to where it was written in terms of the canon of scripture. 
Now, Paul had never been to Rome. The only other letter that he wrote to a city he'd never been to was Colossians. We know from Acts 19.21, Paul wanted to go to Rome. There's that verse where he was on his way back home to Jerusalem, but he said, next time I must see Rome. I got to get to Rome. And this letter was written around that same time at the end of his third missionary journey. We studied the book of Acts. Paul spent a lot of time in Corinth, a lot of time in Ephesus. Then he swept back through the other churches to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, for the poor Jewish Christians there, as, as a gesture of goodwill from the Gentiles. Paul was trying to knit the two groups together in soul and spirit. So he took up a collection. And while he was doing that is when he wrote this letter. And in all likelihood, this was written from Corinth because he tells us in chapter 16, verse 1, that the person carrying the letter was a woman named Phoebe. And Phoebe, he says, was from Sencrie, which was the seaport of Corinth. So he said, she's from the church at Sencrie, and she's going to be coming to you. So imagine being on a boat with a woman named Phoebe, and what are you doing here? Well, I'm, I'm taking a letter to some friends in Rome, and you have no idea that she's got the book of Romans in her backpack, <laughs> and she's about to deliver that. But since she was from Sencrie, we can be pretty certain that she was, or that this letter was written from Corinth around A.D. 57. And we know that because Paul is going to be imprisoned, and at that time, Felix and Festus are going to be the, the governors, the procurators. We know more or less when their terms of service were, and there also was another man named Gallio that gives us a timestamp in the book of Acts. So somewhere between 54 and 59, probably about 57 A.D., which, as I always say, that is not very long after the ascension of Jesus, is it? That's 27 years. So people that want to say, well, this book is so richly developed, it clearly had to have been written hundreds of years later. Nope. Holy Spirit's able to do it that quick. We also know that this was transcribed by a man named Tertius. We're going to see this in chapter 16 as well. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this down, also greet you. This doesn't mean that Paul had a co-author. This is one of his few books where he doesn't have a co-author. It means that Paul was dictating it and Tertius was writing it down. I wonder if he knew what he was getting himself into when he took up that, that job. Hey, I, I'd like to write a letter to Rome. Will you write it down for me? Yeah, of course, no problem. And he begins writing down the book of Romans. Isn't that cool? So that's some basic information written by Paul, written to Rome from Corinth, 57 AD, transcribed by Tertius, carried by Phoebe. And you can keep in mind the story that he was about to go to Jerusalem with that gift for the church there. And I think knowing that, while it doesn't change the way we interpret the book of Rome, it, it makes the book of Romans make a lot of sense because Paul is talking about a lot of the same things that he was trying to do here. And this letter was written for a number of reasons. Philip Melanchthon, who was a disciple of, of Martin Luther, very famously said that Romans is a compendium of Christian doctrine. It's a systematic theology. Well, that's, that's not quite the case. Romans does have a lot of doctrine in it. It's long. It explains Paul's points in a lot of detail. But th there's a lot of things that are not included in the book of Romans that are included in other letters from Paul. There's nothing in here really about the resurrection or about spiritual gifts so much. There is some in chapter 12, but not to the extent that Paul usually talks about it. Doesn't talk about uh, the Holy Spirit quite so much. So it's not that it, it's universal, it covers everything. But the things that it does talk about are, are very, very systematic. But why was this letter written? The immediate cause, as we'll see in here, Paul wanted to go to Spain. 
Paul wanted on his fourth missionary journey to go to, all the way to Spain, which was the, the western end of the Roman Empire. And normally his launching point was the city of Antioch, which was in Syria. He probably realizes that's a little far. I want to go to Rome anyway, so maybe I can make a connection with the people here, and they'll send me out to Spain. The people in Spain did not speak Greek for the most part. They were considered a barbarian nation. And so Latin would have been the language that he would have been speaking. So maybe there was something related to that. And he wanted to connect with them and, and introduce himself a little bit and let them know that his doctrine was on the up and up and I'm not just some weirdo. And when I come see you, you'll know who I am. We know that Paul had some friends in the city of Rome, namely Priscilla and Aquila. In chapter 16, verse 3, Paul will greet them. You'll remember Priscilla and Aquila. They were the other tent makers that worked with Paul, ministered alongside him in Ephesus. And that's probably why Paul would have understood the situation of the church there, because he had these great friends. We don't know who founded the church in Rome. Tradition, of course, tells us that it was Peter, but that is only tradition, and it's tradition that came from much later. It, it stands to good reason, I believe, that if Peter was the pastor of the church in Rome, as has been historically claimed, then Paul might have said something about it, said something to him. We also know that Paul did not like to minister where other apostles had ministered, so that seems unlikely. The simple fact is, we don't know who founded the church there, which is exciting to me, because what it means is that those Christians from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 says that there were Christians, Jews there from Rome, that they took it back to Rome with them. And without the apostles, without great miracles, without any of the cool stuff we read about the book of Acts, just through simple evangelism, they began a church in the city of Rome, right? God doesn't need to use people that have titles and big names, does he? Now, we've studied this too, but it's a good reminder for us. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome. And the reason that the historians give us is there was a dispute between the Jews over a man named Crestus, which is a misspelling of the word Christos. So the Roman historian is saying, these Jews kept on fighting and making trouble over some guy, like Crestus or something like that. And emperor had enough of it and he said, all right, everybody out. <laughs> kind of like your kids when they won't stop fighting. Everybody goes outside. He kicked them out of the city, which is why Paul met Priscilla and Aquila where he did. But Claudius died in A.D. 54, which is five years later. So the Jews would have been permitted to return, and that's what they did. But you've got to imagine here, the Jews from, from the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Jews were the ones that began this church, and the churches always began in the synagogue. There's even a historian named Ambrosiaster, who is a Christian, who said that the church in Rome was founded according to the Jewish tradition, that it had a very clear Jewish character to it. Now all the Jews are kicked out of Rome. Now they come back to Rome, and the church is still there, but this church has just spent five years as an exclusively Gentile church. How do you think that might have gone over? Doesn't give us a lot of detail here, but a lot of the things that Paul addresses seem to be talking about that situation. Because the Jews in Rome now find themselves as the minority in the Gentile church. So for this reason, the second purpose of the book of Romans, as I said, was for a clear expression of the gospel. He wanted to explain his doctrine. He wanted to make sure they knew who he was. But the third reason here, and if I might say so, I think this might be the primary doctrinal reason for the book of Romans, was to bring unity to Jews and Gentiles. He's explaining over and over again the relation between the law and the gospel. 
the Jew and the Gentile. We're even going to see it in these first seven verses. In great detail, start to finish. And there are many themes of the book of Romans. And to kind of pick one is, is not great because you're going to get confused. You know, justification by faith. That's what the book of Romans is about. Well, yes, the beginning. And then you get to the end and it's not so much talking about that anymore. And people say things like, well, th this just must be a, a five-chapter deviation from his main point. Uh, five chapters does not make a deviation. That makes a major section, in my opinion, right? So I think that this idea of how does the Old Testament translate into the New Testament is the whole theme of the book of Romans. And it's expressed in various ways. And we're going to see it over and over again. It's hard to overstate how significant this was. The book of Acts talks a ton about bringing Gentiles into the church. Romans talks about it a ton. Galatians talks about it a ton. Ephesians talks about it. Hebrews, of course, talks about it a ton. Peter gets into it because this was a big deal. We've been reading the book of Genesis. We go all the way through the Old Testament. It's Israel, Israel, Israel. Then we get to the New Testament and Jesus says, everybody. That, that took some getting used to for the church. Especially in this situation where the Jews leave and they come back and here are the Gentiles and they're doing just fine without them. And there was some cultural conflict that we're going to read about towards the end of the book. And Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, is going to write this letter in, in various ways, I think, to help smooth that over and explain it to us. Which is right in line with what he was doing at the time, right? He's bringing a collection to Jerusalem to bring the churches together. He and James are going to come up with a plan to demonstrate that the Gentiles love the church and we don't hate the law of Moses, we don't hate the temple, we don't hate our people. Paul had taken a Nazarite vow at this point and he was going to go and pay for some others who had taken a Nazarite vow at this time. I think that's the primary theme as we will see over and over again. And Paul is not going to make it to Rome, as you know, except as a prisoner three years later. He's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. He's going to be imprisoned in Caesarea Philippi for two years. It's going to take him about a year to make it to Rome because of shipwrecks and a few other things. But when we get to Acts 28, when Paul arrives in Italy and begins making his way to Rome, Acts 28.15 says that a, a contingent of Christians came out from the city to greet him and walk him in a couple days' journey, which tells us they, they liked the book of Romans. It accomplished its purpose. And church history tells us that Paul did, in fact, make it to Spain, and he did use Rome as his base, so to speak, to get out there. In fact, the church father, Clement of Rome, Clement was the bishop or the pastor of the church of Rome, in 96 AD, so again, like 40 years later, not very long after, not even 100 years AD, he wrote a letter called First Clement, which is not scripture, but it's well worth your time. It's excellent. And he quotes from the book of Romans left and right in the book of Clement. I've read it. It even gets almost obnoxious. It's like, am I reading Romans or am I, am I reading First Clement here? What does that tell us? That the church in Rome saw this letter as a treasured possession of theirs. And it was baked into who they were as a people. And they just spoke it naturally without even thinking about it. So it did accomplish its purpose. And not a moment too soon. Because as you know, in AD 64, Nero is going to launch the first terrible persecution of the church in Rome. There's going to be a fire that sweeps through the city of Rome. Everybody wants to blame Nero. Nero chooses to blame the Christians. And that's when all those horrible stories, the martyrs that you've heard about, began 
So this is in between crisis. In, in 49 AD, they're kicked out of Rome, all the Jews. Then they come back. Book of Romans comes in. And then in 64 AD, they're being persecuted again. But right in between comes the book of Romans. So you can see this is not just a systematic theology. And it's not just a letter. It is an epistle written for a specific purpose, but it has a timeless quality to it. Because Paul is going to spend most of it explaining the gospel. And explaining it with a very specific emphasis, but man, oh man, it has transformed people, transformed nations, transformed churches. And it's not just to the Romans, it's to all of God's people. And also, last little thing here, we can be confident in the text of this book. This is an important thing for us to know. Folks always want to come out and say, yeah, you have the Bible, but you can't trust it because it's been changed, it's been edited, it's been messed with. Well, they're not wrong in saying that the book of Romans has been messed with. There was a man named Marcion in the 100s AD who was a heretic. And among other things, he hated Jews and he hated Israel. He, his big heresy was there are two gods, the Old Testament God and Jesus, the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is evil. New Testament God, Jesus, saved us from him and now we don't have to deal with him anymore. So he went on a trip through the New Testament, cutting out anything that he thought was too Jewish. So he only liked the Gospel of Luke, for example. He, for obvious reasons, could not stand the book of Hebrews. And he chopped out chapters 15 and 16 of the book of Romans. Because what's it all about? It's all about harmony and unity and not worrying about dates and not worrying about seasons or what you eat. And he goes, no, no, no. It, it does matter. <laughs> we can't keep the law. And so he chopped up chapter 15 and 16, but it's very clear that that's what happened. We got church fathers like Origen and Irenaeus and a few others that called him out for that. And there's also the fact that the last doxology in the book of Romans, chapter 16, 25 through 27, it, it moves in some of the copies we have. Sometimes it's after chapter 14, sometimes it's after chapter 15. But that, you could probably attribute that to Marcion or to some people trying to make Romans a more general letter, which we'll get to in a little bit. Because most of 15 and all of 16 is Paul greeting the people and saying, hey, I'm going to come, say hello to Priscilla, say hello to Aquila, say hello to this guy and that guy. And it, it makes sense that maybe some folks wanted to make it more general and take out those last couple chapters. But uh, we still have the full version, and that's the version that we prefer to use. Thank you very much. And what I have up here on the screen... This is what is called Papyrus 46. This is the oldest copy of the Book of Romans that we have. It is more than the Book of Romans, but it, it has a huge piece of it. You can see it's a little beat up. It's missing some corners. It's missing some of the earlier pages. It's missing some of the last pages. But this thing dates to 200 AD. That is 150 years after the writing of the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with how textual history works, that is impossibly close. Everything else is hundreds and thousands of years later. We've also got versions, which are translations of the book of Romans in Syriac and some other languages that are even earlier than this. The church fathers quoted it, as I said, so much, we can reproduce it just from what they said. So you are as assured of the book of Romans as you are of just about anything. We've got it right there in front of us. And I think it's cool for us to remember that. So, oh, those things were written hundreds of years later. It couldn't have been because the oldest one we have is 200 AD. We know that it wasn't the first one, which means it had to have been copied and spread enough times that it could get to this shape, which means it had to have been written before that. 
so we can open up this Bible knowing that this book of Romans is the same one that Phoebe carried and delivered to the church in Rome all those years ago. So that's that for an introduction. Pastor Chuck Smith, First Calvary Chapel, said that he wanted to study the book of Romans because he heard someone tell him that if anybody studied the book of Romans all the way through, their church would experience revival. And he said, well, I want revival. And he got revival. I don't know if it was right after he finished Romans, but I'm sure it didn't hurt. And I sure would like to see revival sweep through our city and through our church too. So let's study the book of Romans together. We're just going to do the first seven verses today. Let's read all of it, and then we'll back up and we'll go verse by verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These seven verses are a 126-word sentence. It's all one sentence. Run-on sentences are endorsed in the Holy Scripture. So take that, English teacher. This is actually Paul's longest greeting in the New Testament. And Greco-Roman greeting in a letter at the time was the sender to the recipient, hello. It's that short. James is like that, some of the other epistles. But Paul expands on it because Paul just couldn't sneeze without preaching the gospel. And so that's what he did. Let's read verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, of course, is the author. Romans is one of the very few undisputed Pauline books. Pretty much every Pauline book, there's some egghead that wants to say Paul couldn't possibly have written it. But Romans is not one of those. Romans is one of the few that everybody acknowledges, this is Paul, this is a benchmark for Paul, and we can tell that Paul wrote something else if it looks like Romans. So we don't have to get into all that, and it's not that you would get into it anyway, but it's just important to know. And he identifies himself by two different distinctions here. Number one, he's a servant, and number two, he's an apostle. Let's look at this first one, a servant. This is the Greek word doulos. Properly translated, this would be a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, a slave in Roman culture at the time was not like the slaves that were in the South prior to the Civil War. It was, some cases it was that bad and it was that much squalor, but in other cases, you, you could be a slave technically, but you had more authority and more power than some of the other wealthy aristocrats and senators. So there was a wide range of what a slave could be, which is why in most cases the translations want to translate it servant, because they don't want to confuse people because the cultures were very different. However, to be a slave still meant and still means to have your will totally subsumed into that of another. You may not freely come and go, but you live at the disposal of your master. And for Paul here, he says, I live at the disposal of my master. I do not freely come and go. My will is subsumed into that of Jesus Christ. As he said in Philippians 3.8, he said, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul was willing to be a slave because it was greater than to be great in this world. And every Christian is a slave of Jesus Christ. You must know that. First Corinthians tells us twice that you have been bought with a price. Well, maybe I don't want to be bought with a price. Then you cannot be a believer. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot have it both ways. I'd like to not go to hell and I'd like to live my life however I want. No, no, it doesn't work that way. We are slaves. We are servants. We are douloi of Jesus Christ. And secondly, he's called an apostle. And that word to be an apostle is actually not in the Greek. It would just say Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called apostle or called an apostle, but called to be works just fine. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord told Ananias, remember Ananias was afraid to go and heal Paul. He's like, maybe we could just leave him blind, Lord. He won't be persecuting nobody if, if we let him do that. But the Lord says, no, no, he is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's an apostle. And that's how he has the authority to write such a letter to the Romans. It would have been presumptuous otherwise. And you can actually see that Paul is, is much kinder and, and gentler in the book of Romans than he is in some of his other letters because these are, these are new people. And so he's not going to go full Galatians on him and say, oh, you stupid Romans, right? But he does have the authority. That word apostle, apostolos is the transliteration, just means a sent one. So it can be a general term, meaning messenger. But usually in the New Testament, an apostle with a capital A was somebody who had seen the risen Lord bore witness to that risen Lord and had authority over the church. It can be confusing because the New Testament uses the term apostle in various ways. Somebody who was sent is an apostle. Then you've got the 12 apostles, of which Paul was not even one of those 12. And those were the authority in the church. Then you had men like Paul and Barnabas and Silas who are also called apostles. So there is some variation in what it means, but in this case, he's saying, I am one who has seen the risen Lord and has been specially commissioned with authority from the risen Lord, and that's why I write this letter. But it is interesting to see that Paul opens with slave of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come in and say the most high, holy, eminent apostle to the Gentiles. Because yes, I'm, I'm called an apostle, but you know what? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Being an apostle is not because I'm great. It's because I'm a slave, and that's where my master needed me to be. And all of us are called to be something. All of us are, as he says, set apart for the gospel of God. That word set apart is Greek aphorizo. It means to mark something off or to set a boundary around something, to separate something like a slave would have been. Set apart from other people. Set apart for the gospel. Paul says, my life has been taken from what it used to be and put within these boundaries. And those boundaries are the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what all of us are called to be. Whether you're called to be probably not an apostle or anything else. It's all in the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be our application lesson today. Is to take that separation seriously. And not try to shrug off the responsibility of being set apart for the gospel and yet cling to the privileges and the benefits of being set apart for the gospel. I want the joy. I want the peace. I want the healing. I want the gifts of the spirit. But I don't want any of that responsibility stuff. I don't want the, the holiness part. I don't want the great commission. I don't really care for that. 
And, you know, I've, I've got a lot of things that I like to do, and I don't really think that Jesus has the right to say anything to me. No, no, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. It's all one big package, and it's a glorious thing to be a slave of Jesus Christ. We report to the Lord, and the Lord tells some of us, you're apostles, some of us, you're pastors, missionaries, encouragers, those who show mercy, those who show hospitality, those who help administer the church. All of these things come from the Lord because we are set apart for the gospel. So in verses 2 through 4, Paul's going to explain what that gospel is real quick. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're all set apart for the gospel. What is that gospel? The first point in verse 2 is that it was promised beforehand in the Old Testament. This is the first reference to the Old Testament in the book of Romans. And there's going to be a lot of them. There are more than 60 specific quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Romans. That's not counting allusions, meaning references to without actually giving the text itself. More than the book of Hebrews, even, which is... Half of it is just quotations from the Old Testament, it seems. The book of Romans has more than half of all the references to the Old Testament in the entire New Testament. It is very significant that Paul is making the point here that this gospel, this New Testament, is not separated from the Old Testament, but it is the outflow of the Old Testament. It is everything that the Old Testament was building to is this gospel. This is similar to what Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. He'll say, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Those sacred writings Paul referred to with Timothy, that's not New Testament. Paul is presently writing New Testament. And Timothy certainly hadn't been familiar with the New Testament since childhood. He's talking about the Old Testament. So we need to make sure as Christians that we don't shove the Old Testament off to the side and say, oh, I just want to focus on the New Testament. Well, they all work together. It all flows together. The last prophecy in the Old Testament was Malachi saying that Elijah is going to come and he's going to set all things right. And the next thing we see is John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, make way the way of the Lord, prepare his paths. Then the gospel, then the book of Acts, then a lot of explanation of what that all means and how we're going to live under this new covenant. And then the prophecy of what's coming next. It all flows together, a whole Bible for a whole Christian. So what, how was it promised in the Old Testament? I could spend many weeks talking about this. But let me give you a few primary examples. Genesis 3.15. This is when God promised to Eve that you are going to have a son who's going to crush the head of that serpent. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. That's Latin for the first gospel. The first promise that someday that serpent, which is Satan is going to be destroyed, and everything that he stands for, deception, sin, rebellion against God, is going to come to an end. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God picked one man out of all the nations, Abraham, and he said in verse 3 of that chapter, in you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. As in, I'm going to use you to save the whole world, Abraham. In Exodus 19, God makes the covenant with Israel, and he says, I have ordained you to be priests to the nations something they never lived up to, but that was what God called them to do, to represent the world to God and God to the world, to let people know that the Lord is in fact real, he's alive, and he's going to take care of that serpent one of these days. 
2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David, you will have a son who's going to sit on the throne forever. And he's really going to be my son, he says. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant of the Lord who's going to be punished and bruised for our afflictions and who's going to pay for our sins by his own death. It was always about salvation. The Old Testament is always building up to the Lord's salvation. So when we get to the New Testament, that's why over and over in the, in the Gospels it says, as it was written, this was done to fulfill the Scriptures. The book of Acts is constantly pointing back to the Old Testament. Everything that happened is exactly what the prophet said would happen. So you can see already Paul's connection of the New Testament and Gospel with the Old Covenant because they all are related to one another. And specifically what was promised was about the coming of the Son of God. Concerning his son, verse 3, who of course is Jesus Christ. And we have a really cool thing in verses 3 and 4. The descriptions of Jesus are parallel to one another. Maybe if you're taking notes, you can see this. He says, his son who descended from David according to the flesh. And then we have declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. So descended and declared son of David, son of God according to the flesh, according to the Holy Spirit. And the pinnacle of all that is the resurrection, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So some people have speculated maybe this was an early hymn or an early creed that Paul was quoting, or Paul was just poetic, who knows? Could have been that too. Doesn't affect how we interpret it. But he says that he was descended from David according to the flesh. So he was the son of David. This was the man that Israel had been waiting for. Speaking of promises from the Old Testament... They were waiting for a man who would be the son of David. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 prophesied, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You ever chop down a tree and leave that stump there, and then you come out one day and there's a tiny little beginning of a new tree coming out? I just chopped this thing down. And it's still alive. This is what the prophet is saying, that the line of David will fail. But out of that stump is going to come a new branch. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, he'll call himself the root and the branch of Jesse in a reference to this passage. They were waiting for the son of David. And the Jews, rightly, were waiting for the son of David to establish the kingdom forever and ever. We're finally going to get our land back. We're going to get all of it back. And we're going to reign over the whole world. Well, Jesus Christ was that son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is the account of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Opens with that. Throughout his life, people called Jesus the son of David. The blind man that was sitting by the road called out for the son of David. The Syrophoenician woman who had the possessed daughter called him the son of David. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. As I've said before, a very political statement. Here comes the king. And there's a very interesting thing to note here. When it says in the ESV, he descended from David, the form of that Greek word, it's genomenu, it really means more came about rather than was born is the typical way, which of course we know that Jesus was not born in the typical way. And it says he was his son who was born, of course, to the Virgin Mary, but was not conceived in the same manner as you and I. It was a virgin birth. And Paul is only barely hinting at that. In fact, it's probably better to say that Paul's not even mentioning it, but he's leaving it open for that. 
Sometimes what the scripture writers didn't say or the specific turn of phrase they used says more about what they believe than what they come out and say. Because Paul was being very deliberate not to say that Jesus was born just like everybody else. But then in parallel to being the son of David, he is the son of God in power. And that phrase in power does go with son of God, not he was declared in power to be the son of God. He was the son of God in power. That is a kingly title, isn't it? According to the spirit of holiness, very briefly, last week was Trinity Sunday, and I said we needed to make sure we see this. Can you see the Trinitarian nature of verses 3 and 4? His son. Whose son? God's son. The son of God. The spirit of holiness. This is all over the New Testament. We've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. New Testament writers didn't believe in the Trinity. Well, they sure walked, talked, and acted like they did. The Son of God. John wrote at the end of his gospel, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's more than just the Son of David, but he was the Son of God himself. Now, there is a little translation issue where it says he was declared in verse 4. That's what the ESV has. The word is actually orizo, which is very similar to the word we saw earlier, aphorizo, which meant set apart, marked out, bounded. Remember that? This is a similar word. It just doesn't have the prefix. It means appointed or maybe established. So it really literally would be translated and was appointed to be the son of God in power. And the ESV gives what's called a dynamic translation, which means they're giving a translation that communicates the fact that he was declared to be the Son of God, as in he did not become divine at some point. This passage is not teaching what's called adoptionism. But it's important to know that it, the word is appointed. Appointed how? By the resurrection of the dead. The point that Paul is making is he was shown to the whole world. He stepped into a new level of authority in the economy of the Trinity by that resurrection. We all knew he was the son of David, but now he has been appointed or made to be the son of God, which of course he already was. He's not only king here, he has all authority in heaven too. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So this passage here is really less about the nature of Christ. You're not so much seeing the human and divine natures of Jesus Christ as much as you are seeing the work of Jesus Christ, his humiliation in coming to earth as the son of David, and his exaltation in returning to the right hand of his father as he ascended to heaven. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about that, how he was, he was always the son of God, but he learned obedience and has now received that new sphere of authority, the son of God in power. He was the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, the son of David. By the resurrection of the dead, he became so much more. The king of kings, not just the king of Israel, the king of kings. And what we see from this, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. The events of the gospels are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the hinge of history. Everything before that was leading up to Jesus. And then you have Jesus. And after that, everything is based on Jesus and looking back to him. This is what we are set apart for, to be entirely devoted to that truth and entirely devoted to this person, the King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you committed to these truths? Well, I'm a Christian. Okay, yes, but are you committed? Are you all in, baby? Is it Jesus or bust with you? Are you banking your entire soul on the fact that the son of David, Jesus Christ, 
is also the Son of God seated at the right hand of the Father. That he was the fulfillment of all God's promises. Do you love these truths? Do you rehearse them? Can you explain them to people? Is your life devoted to all that Jesus commands? If not, then do you really believe? Well, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian because I'm not a Muslim and I'm not a Jew, so I guess it's kind of by default. Well, that doesn't work. <laughs> that's not what it means to be a Christian. Well, I'm an American. That's not what it means to be a Christian, my friends. To be a Christian means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a worshiper of Jesus Christ, one whose entire life is defined by what we just read in verses 3 and 4. That he was the son of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Paul was all in as a Pharisee. Everything was about the law. Everything was about the traditions. Everything was about stopping these heretic Christians. But when he saw on the road to Damascus that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law, that not only was he the son of David, that he had become the son of God in power, he gave up everything. It completely flipped his life around when he saw that the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it should be the same for each one of us. If you truly knew who Jesus was, the only thing you'd have to say is what Paul said on the road to Damascus is, what do you want me to do, Lord? Verses 5 and 6. Through whom, through Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Well, Paul brings it back to his calling. He started out by saying, I'm called to be an apostle because of the gospel. And here's a couple of verses about the gospel. Now back to what I was saying. I'm called to be an apostle, which was at the behest of Jesus. Very significant. What gives you the right to be an apostle? Jesus made me an apostle. Now that word grace, it refers to salvation, obviously, but specifically in this case, it's referring to the calling that God places on someone's life. Paul uses the phrase grace to describe somebody's gift or vocation in life quite a bit. He talks about his role as the apostle to the Gentiles as the grace given to me. And he'll say, according to the grace given to each one of us. The word he uses for spiritual gift is charisma, which comes from the word for grace. So Paul has been called to be an apostle. Specifically, he was to preach the gospel to all the Gentiles. At the very end of the book of Acts, Paul said to the Jews who rejected him, he said, fine, well, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and they're going to listen. And here we are, and it was not Jewish culture that was transformed by the gospel, but it's been Gentile culture, plural, multiple Gentile cultures that have been totally overhauled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where we see the work that the gospel is to do in each one of us. We know that we're set apart. We know that we're set apart for Jesus Christ, our Lord. But what does that look like practically? Well, he says it right there. So my apostleship is to build to the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Now, what does this mean? Oh, you've got two, two arguing factions on what this means, and they're both right and they're both wrong. Says, what this means is, Faith, obedience of faith, meaning you are being obedient to the gospel by putting your faith in Jesus. Yes, it is what that means. And then others that say, no, no, no. It's you live out your faith by your obedience. Yes, that is also true. But there's no need to pit them against one another. It's faith as obedience and it's obedience as faith. I'm obeying the Lord's mandate by believing in Christ. But because I believe in Christ, I obey everything else God told me to do. The idea that Paul is opposed to good works is totally preposterous. James was into works, Paul was into grace. Well, no. He says, my job is to bring about the obedience 
of faith. Romans 12 and following is all going to be about, now that we believe all this stuff, here's what we do. And by referring to the obedience of faith of the Gentiles, this passage goes from interesting to profound. Because this is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant which is to bring the knowledge and the worship of God to the entire world, to bless all the nations through the son of Abraham. That passage we read earlier about the root and the branch of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11. If you skip down a few verses, verses 9 and 10, this is a prophecy of what will happen when the branch of Jesse comes, when Messiah comes, the son of David. It says in verse 9, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So Isaiah 11 begins with the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but it begins to end with, and all the nations, Gentiles, goyim, will begin to call on the Lord. So, so when Messiah comes, it's not just going to be the salvation of Israel, it's going to be the salvation of all the whole world. And Paul says, my Joy and my calling is to take that knowledge of God to those nations in order to bring about the obedience of faith. And he specifically includes the Romans in that mandate. Those who are called, you, those who are called, that phrase to belong is not in the original Greek. It's, it's an explanatory gloss, as we'd say. It would say, including you who are called of Jesus Christ. So you're part of that, he's saying. And it also might be Paul's way of saying, this is why I feel okay writing a letter like this to you, because I've been given apostleship of all the Gentiles, which is most of you. Every nation is called to obey Christ in response to the gospel for the sake of his name, it says. And what's amazing is that this is exactly what's happened. The gospel has taken over nations. These nations that were worshiping these false gods have been completely given over to either worshiping the Lord or even in their rebellion. They don't go back to those old gods. They flounder with no God because you can't go back once Jesus has delivered you. The Roman Empire would be completely Christianized, maybe even more than was good for it after a while. But then what began to happen is the barbarian nations, the Germanic tribes, the Goths and the Visigoths began to knock on the door and they were ascendant while the Roman Empire was beginning to crumble. And these barbarian hordes finally sacked Rome. But you know what happened in like a generation? All those barbarian Germanic nations gave up their old gods and began to worship the Lord too. They stopped worshiping Thor and Odin and all those other false gods and they worshiped Jesus. Just as the Romans had given up the worship of Jupiter and Apollo and Juno. That's what happens wherever the gospel goes. The gospel's making its way through India, and the Christians are starting to give up Krishna and give up Vishnu to worship Jesus instead. That's what the gospel does. It's the obedience of faith. And you look at a map of the world, where has the gospel gone? It's gone everywhere, except for a few little places that we're still working on. But the knowledge of God is covering the world like water covers the sea. And Gentile nations, including freedom-loving, independent Americans, coming together in Alabama to worship Jesus Christ. Every one of us is set apart with a job to do. And part of that job is to help bring about the obedience of faith to all the nations. For the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory, 
Are you living your life to bring glory to the name of Jesus? Are you living out the obedience of faith? And are you seeking to bring that obedience of faith to the people who are around you? Now, those people will, ne will never find Jesus. Yeah, that's what they said about the Germanic tribes too. And then the next thing you know, they're the ones writing theology and sending missionaries all over the world. The Lord does not see hopeless cases. He just sees opportunities for miracles. And you have the opportunity to participate in the fulfillment of that promise. So we need to do it. And before we move on, can I just mention again, this is the theme that Paul's beginning to unfold. He says, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and my job as an apostle is to bring the knowledge of the fulfillment of the Old Testament to the world. So that it will be a continual fulfillment. Paul is really stressing here the continuation from Genesis now through the New Testament because of Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He finally gets back to the, the actual greeting itself. Sometimes I wonder if like Timothy or somebody ever nudged Paul. <laughs> Paul, you're still on the dear Romans part and you used a whole paragraph. So he says, to all those who are in Rome. Some of our ancient manuscripts lack that phrase, in Rome. What does that mean? That means some of the copies of Romans we have, it is all the same except when you get to verse 7. It says, to all those who are loved by God. And we say, well, why would they get rid of in Rome, along with in verse 15, the same thing? Probably, as I said, because there were some that thought, you know, let, let's pass this along as a general letter. Let's remove these references that are specific to the city of Rome so that everybody can read it. But of course, it's like, well, thank you very much for that, but we just, we'll take the whole thing. <laughs> thank you very much. I don't want to miss any of it. Rome. Rome was the capital of the world at this time. It was a little city on the Tiber River that had expanded to, at this point, about a million people living in this city. It was very modern, not as we are today, but it had aqueducts with running water. It had sewers. It had indoor plumbing in the, in the nicer houses. It had libraries. It had monuments. It had a sophisticated government, the Senate and the emperor. It had the power of a vast army. This empire stretched from Britain in the north to Spain in the west to Syria in the east and North Africa in the south. They dominated Europe and the Mediterranean Sea, even into Africa and to the Middle East. Its religion, I think, is pretty well expressed by the great temple in Rome. It's called the Pantheon. Pan means all. Theon means God. So we worship at the place where there's all gods. It was a vacuum. It just sucked up gods everywhere it went. Yeah, you can worship that one too if you want, which is why the proclamation of there is only one Savior and one Lord, the man Christ Jesus, was such an offense to the people of Rome. There were some 50,000 Jews living in Rome at this point. Most of them lived in a place called the Trans-Tiberinum, which means across the Tiber. They lived in a slum for the most part. The Jews in Rome, while there were a lot of them, and, and they did attract a lot of attention, it was closer to the status of Jews living in the United States around the early 1900s, living in the tenement houses in New York and Ellis Island and that whole thing, rather than something like Babylon where you had Jews in these high-ranking positions. The Trans-Tiberinum was a place where the tanners would tan the hides that they found. And they would use urine from the public latrines to dry these hides. So the smell was oppressive. 
They lived in these little tenement houses called insulae. That's where we get the word for insulated from. These were these dangerous, high-rising, packed close together tenement houses that we have all kinds of Roman history that tells us that when a fire broke out among these tenements, you were done for. There was no getting out. There was no finding out about it. You were going to die. The synagogues were small and out of the way. We found a lot of them, but none of them seem to be of any kind of size or significance. So add to that the fact that in Romans 16, most of the names that Paul, Paul greets are common slave names. That's the kind of milieu where the church of Rome took root. Later on, Paul's going to say in Philippians, there are even those of the household of Caesar who are getting saved. But at this point, who started this church? There were Christians that had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost, then went back and brought the gospel with them to the synagogues, which were where? In the slums, where most of the other slaves lived. So that's where the churches, these little house churches, as it seems to be organized, began to spring up. And that's who Paul's writing to. But for all that, as, as tough as their life was and as unwanted as they were, and they've been kicked out of Rome and everything else, he says that you are loved by God in verse 7. That's the motivation for the gospel, isn't it? John three sixteen. God so loved the world. And they are called to be saints. Called to be saints. There's a word that took on a definition over time that is not quite what the scripture has. And we talk about Saint Anthony and Saint Ignatius and saint whoever, but saint is the Greek word hagias. It just means holy one or set apart one. And in this time period, the term saint or holy one, hagias, referred specifically to Jews. This is how the Jews talked about themselves. We're the set apart holy ones. We're the saints. That's why in Ephesians, Paul says, you Gentiles who were called with all the saints, meaning you are brought in to this this fellowship with the Jews. And this is what Paul's saying here. He's expanding the definition of holy set apart one to the Gentiles. You know how radical that is. The Old Testament is all about don't be like them. Paul says, but now we're all saints. And it wasn't Paul, obviously. It was God that did that. To be a saint is to be set apart, to be consecrated and holy. That's the case for you and for me. You are called a saint. So put your name in there. St. Tyler. Doesn't have quite the same ring as St. Ignatius, but there you go. <laughs> All nations loved by God called to be saints. In Revelation 5 verse 9, there's a beautiful picture. In heaven, it says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Y'all, it does not matter where you're from, because Jesus Christ has come. And that changes everything. Paul had gone from Turkey to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, preaching the gospel. And he intended to go farther. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Spain. I want to go all the way to the Rock of Gibraltar and be at the tip of the known world at the time and bring the gospel there. Why? Because he knew that there were people all over the world who were called to be saints, loved by God. Do you know that you're loved by God? That God's called you to be holy? Even here in Alabama? You know, we're Americans and we don't see these places, right? We don't, we've never, in most cases, been to Jerusalem. We don't know the geography of Israel. We don't know what Rome or Philippi was like. And so sometimes we can have this detached view. But we shouldn't. We're also loved by God and called to be saints. And like those in Rome, as he says, we have grace and peace from the Lord. 
no partiality. Can you see how Paul has already begun to unfold what he's going to talk about throughout this whole book? How the gospel changes everything and brings everybody together? Romans is an exciting, dense, and sometimes difficult book. But already we can see that Paul is, is outlining these main themes. The work of Christ is the fulfillment of the scriptures, which expands the grace of God to all nations. And those people are saints beloved by God. He emphasizes the truth of our calling and our consecration, which should result in the obedience of faith, commitment to the task of the gospel. You are a saint, but you are also a slave. You've been consecrated by God, but you've also been commissioned by God. You're part of God's story, and it is his story for the sake of his name. This is a joyful reminder of what it means to be a Christian to me. That God has filled heaven and earth in order to redeem people, and he wants to use you to do it. One more great man who loved the book of Romans, William Tyndale, acknowledged that the book of Romans was difficult, but he said, the more it is studied, the easier it is, and the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. Because the longer I chew on the book of Romans, the more I get it, and the more I get it, the more I love it. And we're beginning the book of Romans today. So, y'all, there's no better time than right now to recommit yourself to being set apart for the gospel of Christ. We're going to plumb the depths of this book, the theology. We're going to ponder its application. But all of it is to bring about further separation for the gospel. Because we're not like the rest of the world. Because God has chosen us for his glory, for the sake of the nations, and for the love that he has for every individual in this room. 